Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. Hey, it's Guy here, and you're listening to an audio broadcast of Market Call. That's MKT Call. It's a video series I do with Dan Nathan every Monday through Thursday, live at 1 p.m. Eastern. We break down the big market-moving headlines and offer trade ideas. Each week, we are joined by Carter Worth of Worth Charting and Liz Young from SoFi for their investment analysis. So check it out. And if you like it, follow at Market Call on Twitter and subscribe to Risk Reversal Media on YouTube so you never miss an episode. What up, peeps? Top of the hour. That would be 1 o'clock Eastern time. Swizz here, August 16th. That's Q16. Dan Nathan's joining me, as always, unless he's on vacation, which he's entitled to. By the way, people, take your vacation, okay? Nobody lies on their deathbed saying, gee, I took too much vacation. I'm just putting it out there. That's, that's sort of my thought of the day. Today's market call brought to you, by Dan, by CME Group, where risk meets opportunity we are powered by open exchange i'm powered by some unknown substance i'll tell you about 40 minutes ago i had a bulb special k it was fantastic how are you dan oh my goodness you want you know we should drop a little knowledge a little inside cnbc fast money baseball about vacation you know when we get there we will get a rundown we'll say hey listen you're gonna be on the show tomorrow night here are the co-hosts Here's the, you know, that sort of thing. And if you don't see Melissa Lee, what do you always say to her? You immediately text her or email her and you say, Yeah, what? I said, when were you going to tell me? When were you going to tell me that And what did off? she say? And what did she say and to she you? She said, I just did. She said, Which I'm is so rude. Right I mean, now. I just, just so the folks watching this, I mean, she's so mean to me. I have feelings too. <laughs> I actually said that to her once. I said, you know, I have feelings too. And you know what she said? I know. I mean, that's cold-blooded, man. That's cold-blooded. She she loves you to death. But that that thing, it never gets old. We've been doing it for a very long time. When were you going to tell us? I'm telling you now. All right, let's talk about this thing, guy, because, you know, we got got a war of words here. You know, it seems like the market rally, the stock market rally Mm – is pulling out. I, I, I don't know. What is it pulling out? We're seeing uh, a lot of people saying, "Hey, maybe, maybe it's done. Maybe, maybe a little too far, too fast." You know what I mean? Like some of those perma bulls, they got to call the bottom the whole way down. You get a nice fifteen percent rally. You can take a victory lap. Some are saying that they think that we can get back to new highs. But here's a couple voices here of some a perma bear, uh, mm-hmm. someone who's known to put on the biggest short, and then Jamie Dimon, who I think I, I want to talk about this Jamie Dimon stuff, guy. Because, you know, Jamie has been, you know, somewhat negative on the economy. He doesn't often talk about markets, if you will. Curious because this call that he did with wealthy clients last week, Yahoo Finance was reporting on it, caught, uh, got, definitely got some ink this week. Well, something worse than a recession yeah. is not a good thing. I think we all know what worse than a recession is. And I'll say this about Jamie Dimon. You know, he really hasn't wavered on this. I mean, the, if you think about it, some of the language he uses continues to get more and more, I mean, I guess for lack of a better word, dire. So he yeah. clearly sees something. 
And I would submit, and I've said this now for the last, I want to say, 18 months or so, I would say for 12% of our uh, fellow citizens here in the United States, it already is something worse than a recession. I just don't think we acknowledge it, number one. And listen, I think that's a bit of a tail risk. I don't think he's suggesting it's a 50-50 thing. But what he's saying is a chance of that happening. And I don't disagree with that. I mean, if you look around, a lot of strange things are happening. The only thing that's sort of giving people confidence right now is the fact that the Dow and the S&P has rallied somewhat 14% or so from the bottom. I mean, that's really, I mean, if you really want to get down to brass tacks, that's what people are holding their hopes on. Somehow the Dow is some barometer of what's going on. But quite frankly, I think anything can be further from the truth. Yeah, I mean, guy, there is another data point. We've been talking about it a lot. I mean, what's been going on in, in with jobs is is actually really important. And I think it's something that we're going to continue to kind of, you know, contend with over the next few months. And I think that it will help dictate what actually happens with the economy, whether we just have a run-of-the-mill recession, we have a deep one, something worse than that. Because, you know, if you look at that jobs data that we got for July, we talked about it a bunch, I mean, it's still really hot, you know, so unless we see unemployment tick up, you know, that might be also something as a decent barometer of the sort of landing this economy has. And I don't I know you recall this last week we had um, from Moody's Mark Zandi, who I think is a very good economist on. But he was speaking. This was on Fast Money. He was talking about the resilient economy, the resilient consumer. And the point that I kind of pushed back after he was done was like, how resilient are we when we have these sorts of shocks to our economic system? and we have to throw trillions of dollars of monetary and fiscal stimulus at it. So to me, thinking about you know an economy in 2022 that did not have all of that over the last few years, the economy was already starting to weaken in 2019 pre-pandemic. The economy was really you know growing at 2.2% for years. You know what I mean? So I, I don't know. I, I take some 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 issue with that, um, guy. But here, like I just want to get your take on. Dr. Doom. If you're an economist and you're called Dr. Doom, you're probably a perma bear. So you see what Noriel Robini is expecting here. Things investors are delusional mm-hmm. if they expect the Fed to pivot and in cutting interest rates next year. What is your thoughts there? Uh, you know, that one's a li- so it's interesting. I probably part ways with him a little bit because I do think towards the end of next year, that's probably what we're going to see, but we're going to see it for the wrong reasons. But with that said, I totally get what he's saying with this the fact that they're delusional i mean what he's saying right, is wrong reasons though explain wrong reasons why so you think you disagree with him you think they will cut next year and what will the reasons be because things go basically to shit and they're yeah. going to be forced to um they're going to be forced to do what they've always done when things start to go a little bit pear-shaped and that's come yeah. back with accommodative policy that's what i think is going to happen i mean let's put it this way they're not cutting interest rates because things are going to be great and i think that's what's going to happen in the back half of next year and to a certain extent if you look at sort of the fed watch tool it suggests that as well and we've said it for a long time so we're on the same page we're probably looking at a different word but with that said you also have to look at what michael burry just said and people say ah the guy's always negative first of all that's not true and if you go back to last summer dan and i know you know this because we talked about it he was a guy that came out and said, you know what, you got to short the ARC ETF. And he literally top ticked that thing. It never looked back. So he's the first person to say he's typically early. In the case of last summer, he was literally to the day. Yeah. And, you know, the fact that he's getting out of his stocks here, I mean, say what you want. I mean, oh, the guy's always negative, blah, blah, blah. Certain people do certain things. Jamie Dimon says something. Nuria Rubini says something. Michael Burry says something. 
you have to take notice. You don't have to heed their warnings, but you absolutely have to listen to their warnings. Yeah, well, that's a fact here. All right, let's look at this real quickly before we get out of these kind of, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a, corn, today, a, cornic, a cornucopia of kind of negative um, thoughts about you the market. You used the word cacophony of negativity before. Well, a cacophony would, would explain like like just the voices of them, right? Not a cornucopia. That's more of a basket of some oddly shaped uh, vegetables, right? Gourds. Usually autonomal vegetables. Is autumnal, that, is yes. That, By the way, autumnal. before you know it, you're going to be out there picking pumpkins and all that stuff. So Not enjoy that. Not my jam. All right. Well, real quickly here, Bank of America says investors are no longer apocalyptically bearish as fund managers. Cash holdings dip to 5.7% from 6.1%. Guy, talk to me about those percentages. I mean, listen, you know, Lisa Bromwich, she puts this data out here on the Twitter. Um, Really, we're talking about a sentiment shift here, right? Mm -hmm. So again, we've had a big move in the stock market. You'd expect bearish sentiment um, by investors to come down as the market goes up, which basically brings us to the S&P. 500. Carter was on with us yesterday. We're charting. He drew this line. I'm drawing it again today. This is the S&P futures here, guy. You Mm -hmm. see that we went from the Jan 2nd high to the late March high to now where we are. We're probably, what, a few handles away or 10, 20 handles away from that downtrend. The 200-day moving average is at 43, what, 22 or so. Lines up with that downtrend what happens here, guy? Nostradami, talk to You know, to it's me. interesting. If Car- you know, Carter's on Mondays and Wednesdays, which in yeah. my world are odd days, today being Tuesdays, an even day. If he were here, he would say uh, the line draws itself to the penny. And that's exactly what's going on. I mean, you still have a sloping downward moving average. That's not bullish. And you trade it up to this downtrend line, which is something we've been talking about for quite some time. So here we are. I would submit that today is going to be the day. And you know, listen, I've been wrong so much. We've had a lot right, a lot wrong. But this is one of those days you have to watch very closely. I happen to think we're going to reverse today. And that 43.04 is going to look more like 42.68 by day's oh. end. I want you to sort of bookmark that. And we'll talk about it tomorrow on Market Call. Because the the scenario sets up really well for exactly that. Everybody getting all uh, invigorated by Walmart, which we'll talk about. I yeah. mean... It wasn't near. It's funny. You lower guidance and then you beat lowered guidance and everybody gets all excited. But then you say, wait a second. (laughs) It still ain't that great. So we'll talk about that. I get it. But today's one of those days where I think we could start things getting a little softer as the day progresses. So I look at this uh, ES1 chart, the futures chart. And to me, did everything it needed to do. Moving average is still uh, sloping lower. I think it sells off from here. Yeah, you know, interestingly, I mean, it's just somebody who loves to be a little bit um, precise here. You know, you'd love to see those, um, you know, these indices. Let's look at the NASDAQ futures really quickly here, too. You'd love to see them kind of kiss that 200-day, right? Because, Mm -hmm. again, if these lines, you know, have any relevance, um, it's usually because a lot of people are looking at the same levels, right? They're looking at the same smoothing mechanisms, moving averages, that sort of thing. They set stops in things like futures in the S&P and the NASDAQ in and around those levels. That's often why you see things bounce at support and get rejected um, at resistance. And the NASDAQ 100 futures here, guy, this one got through that downtrend, 
But you could say that that 13,650 level or something like that is maybe an important resistance level. That's where it broke down in late April. And when it broke down from that level, it went straight to 13,000, then straight to 12,000. So again, we'll talk in a few minutes about some of the rotations that are going on in the market that kind of maybe speak to why the NASDAQ overshot, but the S&P has not gotten there yet. Yeah. For, and I think just for historical context, and we've talked about this for a while, I mean, if you remember when the markets were going higher, the NASDAQ never really um, backed up or the NASDAQ never really reinforced that S&P move, right? It was never commensurate with the S&P move uh, to the upside. Now the NASDAQ seems to be outperforming on the short term. So I think the same type of thing could happen. I mean, maybe this is the reverse of what we saw effectively eight or nine months ago yeah. in terms of now we're seeing the outperformance in the NASDAQ. But Again, I just think this is a precursor, again, uh, of this next downdraft. Again, we thought 4,100, overshoot to 4,200, we're at 4,300 in the S&P. So things do happen. But keep your eye on today because I'm telling you it's going to be one of those days we look back upon in the weeks to come. 4,268, guy, it is bookmarked there. All right, let's talk about that point that you By the did. way, if that does happen, yeah. I'm just telling you people now. Yeah. I will come on Market Call tomorrow, and I'll be all fired up. I'll get in Tom Sosnoff's grill like friggin' Richard Dent for the Chicago Bears against some Scrabino quarterback. Anyway, back to J- you. Just so you know, um, Richard Dent, I grew up, he was a defensive end. He was, he was a, you know, he was a wrecking ball, that guy, right? And he was on that 85 Bears team. I was at the opening night in the September 2019 NFL season at Soldier Field, guy. Monday night they were, football. They were playing. Well, it was Thursday night football. Thursday but night the, football. The Packers of Green Bay, sure. and I was in. I was in a box at halftime with Richard Dent and with Otis Wilson, and it was pretty cool, man. Uh, just for you know, just just to. That's tell not, you that, I, they must. And I bet you know what they said. What they're saying right now on their podcast or their market call, they're like, you know. I was in a booth with Dan Nathan now, for Mark. You know, you know what's really funny? I'll tell you this. <laughs> I'll tell you this because Richard Dent's obviously a Hall of Famer here. Um, but I was wearing a throwback jersey of Mike Ditko when sure he was a bear, okay? And they did not dig on my jersey. They did not think it was particularly cool. Um, they just, you know, you read you read all about that that kind of, you know, the offense versus the defense, Buddy Ryan's defense and Ditka's offense there. They did. They were not big fans of each other, guys. They were Buddy's guys, no doubt. About, and I don't think a lot of people like Ditka. Jim McMahon didn't like Ditka. I don't yeah. think a lot of people really liked him. Buddy Ryan didn't like Mike Ditka. I don't yeah. think Mike Ditka likes Mike Ditka. By the way, uh, he played for the Dallas Cowboys as well, tight end. I think Ditka's in the Hall of Fame, but yeah. why are we talking? I mean, I can't. It's Sorry. amazing. My bad. You mentioned Richard Dent. I did it. I did it. I apologize. Let's please move All right, on. Let's do, let's do this really quickly because we were talking about, you, you were just saying the NASDAQ's overshoot and mm-hmm. why. Okay, well, just look at this. And, and again, there's a couple of downgrades this morning. One of Snowflake, and I think this is a really interesting one. Um, UBS downgrades to neutral. The stock had a big run off of its June lows, guy, and its highs or recent highs last week. The stock was up 60%. Okay, well, here's the deal. At its lows in June, the stock was down 73%. Yeah. Now, the thing has a $51 billion market cap right now. It trades about 10 times sales here. Do the math on the market cap that was gained off the June lows. You could do that quite easily, right? We're up about 55%, and now we have a $51 billion market cap. Um, off of the highs, though, I mean, this was over a $100 billion market cap. It was trading about 25 times sales, guy, at its highs here. 
What do you make of these sorts of calls? I drew a couple lines here. You know, snow is dealing with this 162 levels, a big breakdown level um, in May, okay, when his low is what, 110 or so. Here we are at 162. You see that uptrend's in place. Technicals really don't matter for a name like this. If they were to guide down based on enterprise demand weakening, what does it mean for the NASDAQ? It means, well, I, the read through for the NASDAQ should be really bad because yeah. this is a great tell for exactly what you just said. So you could start to look at a host of different companies that theoretically should be affected by that, number one. Not unlike when we talked about um, what the, the name escapes me, but when you brought it up on Fast Money a month or so ago. Anyhow, it wasn't yeah. this, it wasn't the size of the name. It was the mean. Oh, it was the company from Bill McDermott. Help me out there. Oh, service now. Uh, yeah, service now. Yeah, and if yeah, you yeah, re- yeah. if you go back and listen to their, you know what he said on Jim Cramer's show, that theoretically should have yeah. had huge ramifications, and it did for a couple of days, and everything shrugged it off. But to answer your question, if Snowflake were to say that, the stock would probably immediately be 125, 130, and I think it would the, the knock on effect would be. The Microsofts and the Oracles and, and even the Googles potentially could all come under the under the spell or under the sort of the auspices of their negativity. Yeah, well, I think the, the main point there, it's not just kind of SaaS that sell into enterprise. When you think of some of these big platform companies, to your point, Google, Amazon, um, you know, Microsoft, they all have these big, you know, cloud, um, you know, public cloud businesses. And that would just kind of be the read through, no doubt um, about that. Guy, let's quickly look at a Zoom downgrade. Also, again, this was a pandemic winner mm-hmm. and, you know, was trading at um, a crazy multiple. It's had a big run off its lows, but it's really gone sideways for the last couple months you know it had that kind of mid-may kind of like bloodletting and at the time i think it was down nearly 80 percent from its all-time highs really flatlined here i mean competition you know again you and i've talked about this um you know, if any of these guys like Microsoft, Cisco has an offering. I mean, there's no shortage of offerings. Salesforce has Slack now. You know, this is a $32 billion market cap company. It's down 40% of the year. It's down a whole heck of a lot more from the highs here. How does a company like this kind of come back? It still trades at kind of a fat multiple, seven times sales. Um, and it's really not growing on a gap basis not that profitable and sales are only expected to grow about 11 12% a year for the next few uh years not 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 a not a multiple that that screams buy me here huh no and to answer that question how does this company come back they don't come back now that's not to suggest it's not a great company that's not yeah. the point they have a great service it's to suggest it should have never been a $400 stock number 1 and we probably talked about it at the time and it probably finds a level that it makes sense. I don't think this is a level, though, the upside. I mean, Zoom is probably not going anywhere. Competition is coming. But Zoom will be part of that narrative without question. It'll just be part of that narrative at a much lower valuation and subsequently a much lower stock price. By the way, you've said this a number of times. It wasn't Zoom's fault that the market took it yeah. to $400 last fall, right? I mean, it wasn't their fault. I mean, they probably should have done an offering or more offerings if they did one. It's the market's fault. And at a certain point, it's going to be the market's fault that it probably overshoot to the downside. It will find an equilibrium. I don't think it's at this current price, though. Yeah, here's one, though, guys. Um, people have been asking us about it. And here's a guy, Robert Mills. Maybe he's mm. Jeff Mills's relative, our friend, the general from By the Fast way, Money. how funny was it the other night? I yeah. mean, we fricasseed Mills. On, yeah. And just so the folks at home know, I love Jeff Mills. I think he's fantastic. But 
you know, we broke his horns in a major way. Anyway, good, back to good. you. He's he's a good sport here, but let's talk about this Adobe here because this would fit in that kind of um, enterprise software bucket, and also one where this is not a cheap stock guy. This stock, you know, trades at about twelve times sales. Okay, those sales are expected to grow low teens at best for the next few years. And what I think, you know, is is really fascinating here is this is a two hundred billion dollar market cap company. Huge the company. stock traded, you know, as high high as $700 in November, traded as low as 350 so it was down, you can do that math, mm-hmm. 50% right now, it's down about 35% or so. This one, again, you know, if we're talking about how do the how does the market bottom, you need stocks like this that trade at multiples that people were willing to justify, right, in, in boom periods. You need them to overshoot to the downside, just like they did to the upside. This one still seems very fat to me, guy. There was a period of time where when, you know, pre-COVID probably, or maybe even early in COVID, Adobe would come out. And, and I, you know, I only remember this because it happened with such frequency. The stock would run up into earnings. They'd report. The stock would sell off. I'd say give it a couple days. Within a week, it'll be making a new all-time high. And that happened, I would say, at least four or five times over the course of however, you know, a couple of years. Um, I remember the last time I said that, and I think it was probably, I don't know, in the, in the fall of last year. I remember you saying something like, have at it, you know, th- what that's your want to say. And you yeah. brought up everything you just brought up now in terms of valuation. And that proved to be spot on. The stock is still expensive here. And it's ve- it was easy to justify its valuation when money was zero and valuations didn't matter. It's very hard to you know, to basically wrap your head around the valuation where money's getting tighter and valuations do matter. So it's a very important company. It's a great company. I don't think it's necessarily a great stock to own right here, though. Yeah. I mean, again, just a correction. I think I said 15 times sales, 12 times sales, topped out at about 20 times sales in November. Again, the stock got cut in half from those levels here. But, you know, there needs to be some kind of rationale be t- behind these uh, valuations here and this one doesn't seem to have it maybe there's and it's one not more. i mean and this is not a takeout candidate to your point about yeah, no. its market cap so you know you're basically relying on organic growth from them and it's probably just not that environment for it anyway sorry about that yeah hey here's one really quickly here's uh, gregory cook tweets at us here he's watching the fine program uh is the move over in snap Netflix, are you that's, still that's in these Snap trades? Snap is your baby. Yeah, well, I, you know, listen, I am still in Snap, and, and I'm looking at this stock at 1261, and I originally bought it in May at 1280. It went to 1635 the day before its earnings last month, and I didn't sell any. I probably should have traded all the way down to below 10. I got my average down, and I talked about it here to 10 and a half. Well, here we are now. I mean, this is one way to trade. Um, it was a bit of a widow maker for for a bit there. Um, here I am now. I'm up two bucks. My average is 1050. It's at 1260. Might I sell a little bit? I see a gap to be filled back towards that kind of 14 and a half, 15 dollar level. That's where maybe I take half of that off. Netflix just, you know, again, I started buying that in May. It had such a big run. I am out of that. But again, I don't think that there's a gap there to be filled. I'd love to kind of maybe buy that again yeah. if it were to come in. And real quickly, guys, shop. I started buying this in the low 30s, got to about 40. Um, I am out of a little bit. I'm still there. And Square, I'm not a fan. It had a big move. I'm long the PayPal, which I bought pretty decently again. So um 
I'm out of meta. I bought a bunch of these internet names when I just thought they went too far to the downside. The sentiment got way too negative, but I still like Snap. I still like Shop. I will get back in Netflix. I will not get back in Meta. I really like PayPal, and I'd love to see it pull back a little bit and buy some of that. There you go, guy. The tell in Shop, by the way, was, if you recall, the day before earnings, they had a big headcount reduction, and I think the stock yeah. traded down to 28 and a half. And I actually said on Fast Money that night that they're going to report tomorrow. I'm telling you people now, if that stock doesn't go negative, don't fade the rally, and that's proven to be correct. By the way, Major double bottoms there um, for those playing at home in Shopify. Uh, let's continue here, Dan, because the biggest retailer on planet Earth in terms of just revenue or sales, I should say, is Walmart. You think about it. Walmart, I mean, think about this number. They'll do close to $2 billion-ish a day in sales. It's a little less than that, but just for rounding up, just for emphasis. I mean, it's a staggering number. Yeah. Obviously, the problem, well, not the problem, but it's a margin game, right? And I will tell you, I mean, this quarter was better than expected, but, you know, they beat lowered guidance and people are getting all giddy, which is fine, except that now we're at levels you have to say to yourself, wait a second, hold on, wait a second, slow down. Walmart's now trading it probably, I would imagine, given this run, 24 times or so next year's yep. numbers. About to fill that gap, if we haven't already, that we actually talked about but now we have other gaps that we just created on the downside. So I said it on Fast Money last night. I said, listen, if Mike Coco beware is right and the options that he flagged those 140 calls come to fruition, if it gets to 140, you pull, you pull the ripcord, take some profits and move on. What are your thoughts? Yeah, well, I, I think interestingly enough, I mean, the gap right to that 200-day moving average, guys, about 139 or so. So here we are firmly above it. It's ability to kind of not only hold on to those gains, but take the whole sector up with it is pretty impressive. Yesterday, we did talk about when it gapped lower from 132 down to 120. The fact that it filled in that gap really quickly is really telling about investors and their positioning in the space. And and, you know, I, I, it makes sense, guy, to take a step back here and talk about that a little bit. So if you want to isolate this chart in, you know, at home or whatever you're using to kind of look at these charts, when you look at that move that the stock had in late June into July, right? And it ran from $118 to $132. And then you have this unexpected pre-announcement. No one saw that coming except one options trader. Remember, we highlighted the fact that there's a lot of put buying in that. And then you see the stock, you know, just fill in that gap so quickly. That tells you, for the most part, it tells me that investors made up their mind about this thing. So to see another gap to the upside going the opposite way, that makes some sense to me that investors have basically gotten their arms around valuation, they've gotten their arms around what they think the worst of these inventory issues are, and maybe with some of the data that we see about inflation coming down, makes you feel a little bit better about the US consumer. Thoughts there, Guy? I've made up my mind, I ain't wasting no more time in the mortal words of White Snake, and oh, I don't think geez. you should waste time in terms of taking profits here. It's already traded 23 million shares, typically trades nine. We're probably gonna trade, I don't know, probably close to five times normal volume after all is said and done. To me, that's capitulation. And again, I think people are getting giddy over a not so great quarter. It's great in the context of they beat lowered expectations, but this is not great by any expectation. This, the price action is great. And we'll see what Target has to say as well. I think you bring up a good point. But these are, I think, rallies that you want to, I think, 
uh, fade and sell into, yeah. especially if you're obviously long the stocks. Well, talking about Target, that's going to be out what in the next uh, you know tomorrow morning. Twenty four so. hours. Yeah. So so this is one you know again, and we made this point yesterday. I think into the Walmart quarter. I mean, you know, getting in front of some of these stories doesn't make a whole heck of a lot of sense, especially when you see a lot of these gaps. I mean, yeah, you could say I think uh, that Target is not going to have done as well as Walmart with their inventory issues, and maybe their consumers a little different, and maybe their just execution is poor. You could say this is the perfect level to short this stock again. It is right at that kind of, what was that, that February low, right before it gapped higher guy. I mean, like all the lines, you know, work, I guess. But if you have a better than expected number, given investor interest in the rotation into some of these names, okay, could you have this stock back above 200 at that 200-day moving yeah, average on a beat raise? Average. And listen, you can make, the, the, the reason to be in Target over Walmart historically has been valuable. And that was right for a while. And then obviously you saw the disaster that came out in terms of what Target said with their inventory mix and all those things. You know, what I'm going to love tomorrow, if in fact Target does trade higher, is all the people, you know, pounding their chest saying what a great company Target is, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, how they've been buying it all the way down. That's such complete horseshit. But that's neither here nor there. I think it's the same situation now. These retailers are not out of the woods, number one, with their inventory. They're not out of the woods with their consumer. By the way, Dan, $235 million, two quarter of a billion credit cards have been issued, new credit cards, since April. Yeah. U.S. credit card debt is now north of $1 trillion. So think about that for a second. So for all you people out there listening to these pundits say what a great shape the U.S. consumer's in, it ain't true. I mean, they're in great shape in terms of buying things. Yeah. They ain't in great shape in terms of their balance sheet. And I think at a certain point, this catches up with the retail sector and, and catches up with Targets and Walmarts. Yeah, I, I get you, man. And, you know, we talk about debt and we talk about the drag on growth. And I think that this next slide that we have, here's a woman that you and I know and have a ton of respect for. Louise Rebecca Yamada. Patterson, who's over there. No, Rebecca Patterson oh, over I, there. I, can I tell you something? <laughs> I dig her. <laughs> She's a badass, man. She is. Wait, the edgy, longer the uh, longer the base, higher in space. Right, that that's was her Louise, saying. That's not but you know who doesn't say that? Rebecca Patterson yeah. over there at Bridgewater. Bridgewater is one of the largest um, hedge funds on the planet. We've known Rebecca since she's been doing CNBC for years and years. I think a great strategist here, and she's basically talking about the likelihood that the Fed is not going to stick to the landing, and the likelihood that we're going to be in a stagflationary environment, and what that means for growth. And to your point about that. You you know, U.S. consumer levering up right now as rates are going higher, as a lot of the basically the tailwinds to their balance sheets are fading off after the pandemic. Not a great scenario. But what does it mean? We just talked about what we think it means for stocks, right, for growth there. But rates are really kind of telling the story here, too, Guy. And if you look at the 10-year, you know, you had thought for a long time that rates were going to go back up to those 2018 highs here. We overshot a little bit and here we are. You know, if you look at that five-year chart, it really doesn't look like a bullish setup for yields, uh, in my opinion, which is a reflection, I think, on what the smartest investors out there, and I put uh, Bridgewater in there, as a stagflationary environment where growth's going to be low, right? But prices of some of these things that moved higher stick around and they really weigh on corporate margins. Is that what yield are telling you right now, guys. This is a five-year chart, so it doesn't really illustrate the volatility we've seen recently. Yeah. I mean, 330 down to two and a half up to current levels. And there are a lot of uh, 
fluctuations in between that. I, you know, I think the bond market is still trying to figure out what's going on. I will tell you, and this is just my opinion, if yields, if 10-year yields go higher here, um, it doesn't mean it's going higher because growth is getting yeah. better. Quite the contrary, it's probably going higher because inflation is still a concern. On the flip side, if 10-year yields start to go back down to 2.5%, historically a bullish thing for equities, it suggests that the bond market is catching on to the fact that growth is slowing. So in my mind, as small as it is, I can't wrap my head around either scenario being bullish for equities. And yeah. you know, right now, I think the bond market is struggling, in my opinion, as much as I'm trying to struggle with the broader market, trying to figure it out. It doesn't know where 10-year yields should be. And that's, listen, you watch the way it's traded over the last month and yeah. a half, two months. I think that backs up my, uh, it backs up my point. Yeah, just to bring this thing full circle to the way we started this conversation, though, you know, about debt and its drag on growth, okay? Look at this chart over 40 years, okay, going back to 1980 of the 10-year U.S. Yeah. Treasury yield. It was above 10% back then. Upper left, bottom right. Okay, when you look at this extraordinary period that we have just gone through, this, the U.S. Federal Reserve has just raised interest rates nearly 3% in a matter of, what, four or five months. It's got to be the fastest increase of that size ever. So here we are. We've had this huge move in 10-year yields, and they've really gotten stuck right at that long-term downtrend. Guy, again, if you think about where the Fed balance sheet is and its impact on growth, I really think that you're going to see this 10 year yield back towards 2%. And then, okay, and then in the next crisis that we have, and it is coming, and it might be in the form of a credit crisis, you're going to see the 10-year back at those 2,000, I don't know, what, what is that double bottom low that we saw, 1.5% or so. So too, that's my take here. I'm not, uh, you know, some fancy strategist at some fancy hedge fund. I just don't see yields ever going up meaningfully unless inflation is just so run away to a point that makes early 70s or what we saw then in the 70s look uh yeah. like a child's and, game. and one of your points was with the amount of debt we have if you look at just you know national debt and all those things you yeah. at the fed's balance sheet i mean it'd be catastrophic if rates went meaningfully higher i totally get that um but the flip side of that if it gets rates back down to one and a half percent in the 10 year again in my mind something catastrophic is equally happening on the downside so we'll see we should also look because this is what we do since it's cme day we should look at the cme fed watch tool which is something we look at every day. I mean, I don't think all that much has changed. I mean, obviously, over the last month or so, things have changed. But over the last couple yeah. of weeks, things seemingly about the same as we've seen them, Dan. Yeah, I mean, again, you know, we went a month ago prior to that Fed meeting in late July to a very high probability of a 75 basis point hike. That's what the CME FedWatch tool was telling us then. You see now it looks much more likely that we see a 50 basis mm -hmm. point rise. We have the Fed minutes that are coming out tomorrow, believe it or not. I think that will be closely watched just to give a sense of kind of, you know, the direction here or whether if traders have it correct. So, again, if if we see, you know, expectations ratchet up for you know, greater uh, rate hikes, that means inflation or at least some of the readings that are followed closely by the Fed and large investors and strategists are not trending in the right direction, which kind of brings us to the dollar here, Guy, the U.S. Uh, dollar here, the Dixie index, 50 percent of that is the euro. We know that euros had um, a tough slog here. 
you know, again, you know, the Fed's been raising, the dollar's been going higher. You also have, you know, the issues with the Eurozone, which has put upward pressure on it too. But it's contending with that uptrend right now since earlier this year, guy, when it really took off, right? When, the, you know, around the time where Russia invaded Ukraine, maybe that was a flight to quality. But this chart, you know what this chart looks like to me, buddy? Well, I tell you what, I'm not the brightest bulb in the fixture, as you know, but that looks like the hungry alligator to me, Dan. Yeah, well, it does. And so, again, let's just talk about this. If we were to see the dollar move lower, okay, it had that big rise from, you know, 100 to about 108. And here we are, we're contending with that uptrend, 104.5-ish or something like that. You know, that might be helpful, I I think, for U.S. multinationals um, a little bit here, right? I mean, so just just thoughts on, on, on a weakening dollar and what that might be. For, mean for corporate earnings if quickly if the dollar weakens it's because the market perceives or believes that the fed is going to pause or pivot or actually to that nouriel tweet earlier um in our show actually lower rates in the back half of next year so a weakening dollar is i think predicated on the fact that the fed's going to sort of give it up and basically change course once again that's why the dollar would sell off but that's why commodities would go higher as well which leads us to our next chart and yeah. again invoking Lisa Abramowitz twice in one show, which is remarkable. But here we are in crude, Dan. Well done by you. I mean, she talks about a, a Rorschach test. I can't either spell nor say that. Of course, my feeble mind, I think of the great Arnold Horshack of uh, Welcome Back Cotter fame. What are your thoughts here? It looks like we're breaking down in a meaningful way each and every day. Yeah, and she's she kind of lays this out pretty correctly. And you and I have been talking about this. We talked about it on Fast Money. I mean, either the precipitous drop in crude here and getting back to levels where it topped out back in November, you know, she's saying that either it's emblematic of a global economy in decline and careening towards recession or it's a normalization of crude values that takes much needed inflationary pressure off companies. You know, again, you know, it overshot to the upside side on two occasions this year might it overshoot on the downside and again you know to me I, listen i don't trade crude but i trade stocks um in and around it and i also think of it as a big important input to um a lot of companies here this is not a great looking chart i mean i i can see this thing getting back to that uptrend that's been in place since the start of 2021 guy and that point you know you might see a bit of a consolidation, right? Where, you know, the players who were so convicted about much higher prices or the players that think that it should be back at 60 bucks a barrel, maybe it finds some sort of equilibrium after both itches have been scratched, if you will. I like that. Yeah, but I, again, I, I'm just not playing for a big move higher right now. It would take some sort of geopolitical event. Um, but, you know, the other thing I just want to make the point is like, there are so many things in the China data that we saw over the weekend we talked about yesterday that are really speaking to the fact that it doesn't feel like there's going to be this post-pandemic boom where are all these people and i gotta tell you absolute bullshit all of these people with the roaring 20s it was the it was that the dumbest and the laziest sort of like thought process about what comes after one of the worst couple years that we've had in the global yeah for for the planet i think in modern times well the back end of the roaring 20s weren't all that good for you uh history majors out there but i won't get into that and it was a little lazy and listen Crude oil is important, but I'll say the flip side of crude oil, not that I'm trying to play devil's advocate here, nat gas continues to go up seemingly every day. And for industries, nat gas is a huge input. We'll talk about that on another show. Here's your crude chart and futures. I mean, you drew the line, Dan. Past resistance becomes support. We're finding it here probably 
around 87. You draw the uptrend line, probably comes in over time to K right around 80. We'll see how it plays out. But the next thing we have to look at is your baby. I like to say BK is the original Bitcoin baller, but you're not far behind, Dan Nathan. I, I am anything but that. I think why you think it's my baby is that between the two of us, I spent a little time on it. I mean, you Listen, you know their stuff. You've actually had a great macro call. I think that you thinking about it as a macro asset, not for the reasons that people, you know, like some of these hardcore crypto people, the censorship resistance, the you know, all that sort of stuff. You think about it as another input when you see the dollar do this, when you see the rates do this. You know, and, and, and I have actually learned a lot from you about that relative to gold. I think about it more from an innovation standpoint when it went maybe the innovation of, let's say, money. Um, I also think that Ethereum has been very interesting to me, just all the development that goes on top of a smart contract layer one blockchain. So to me, I've been more focused on Ethereum. I will say this. I started buying um, again in May around 2000, where it is right now all the way down and I got a good average on it, but I am lightening up pretty dramatically here, guy. There's this um, merge that's going to happen, a proof of work to a proof mm. of stake. It's just the way that basically um, ETH is 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 kind of created and used and it just really speaks to the speed and the cost of using that network. And I think it's become a consensus trade here. So again, at technical levels here, at sentiment levels, I've sold a lot of that over the last couple of days. So just a quick update here and we've gone way way i mean here. we're an extra and we're in the ot here by the way i love the ot um it's a new show on cnbc from our friend scott wapner who it's called the overtime it's the the closing bell overtime the ot yeah the ot no because it's the overtime halftime and then you play the second no, halftime half is this show then, at noon yeah and, and so it's the halfway point of the market day market closes at four uh -huh. So then anything that happens in that four to five o'clock hour is the OT. Yeah. Okay, I'll think about it. And that. then, um, and then you know what comes on at five o'clock? CNBC's Fast Money, which if yeah. we make it to January, and no, I don't know anything. I've been saying if since January of 07, you because you just never know in TV. It'll be 16, one, six years. Some of you people weren't born yet that are watching this. And if you are 16 and watching this, what the hell are you doing? Go outside and play. <laughs> but that's it for today's market call. I want to thank our sponsors, CME Group, Dan, where risk meets opportunity, powered by Open Exchange. If you enjoy the show, like the videos, like our videos, leave us a comment. We'd like to hear from you, good or bad. Send me the bad. Send Dan the good. Dan and I will be back tomorrow with Tom Sosnoff of Tasty Trade. And, of course, the aforementioned Carter Braxton Worth of Worth charting Audi 5000, bitches. <laughs> Whoa, what the?